Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from a hot Macomb, Illinois. Hot as in it is hot outside. Um, so we've experienced some some a few warm days here, and I've enjoyed all of them outside. Uh, I'll have to say it has been pretty nice. And then the, you go into the air conditioning, and it feels almost like a like a brutal slap in the face. Um, but we've really enjoyed these last couple days, and we're going to be talking about forestry. We're going to be talking about invasive species. We're going to be talking about native plants, all kinds of fun topics. Uh, we can't do this by ourselves, though. We do have Katie Parker from Quincy, Illinois, our local foods educator. Katie, thanks for being co-host today. Oh, no problem. It's good to be here. And, of course, our other co-host is Ken Johnson in Jacksonville, Illinois. He's a horticulture educator, U of I Extension. Hello, Ken. Hello, Kristen, Katie. And so, Ken and Katie, we have uh, quite a, a great show today. Uh, we have a specialist that I have relied on like numerous times. I don't know if there's a question that he can't answer. Um, he is the. We. I'll just say it. He is the Captain America of U of I Extension. Um, he, it, this is Chris Evans. So Chris is, uh, he's an extension uh, specialist in forestry and research here with extension. He's also the interim state coordinator for the Master Naturalist program. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Chris. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are definitely happy to have you because, you know, over the course of, uh, especially as a career of, as a horticulture educator, you know, they, people say, oh, you're probably getting all those questions about like roses and daylilies and things like that. It's like, yeah, yeah, we get those. But we also get a lot of question about forestry, prairie, woodland, invasive species, native species, you know, native insects. We get... Mm -hmm. Pretty much the gamut of questions, and and you really have been there, especially for a lot of us on the, the horticulture team who you know that's not necessarily our background. So uh, thank you very much for all of your expertise that you share with us. Oh yeah, no problem. It's uh, it's one of my favorite part of the jobs. You know, is is helping to identify stuff. Oh, thank goodness, because boy, do I have questions for you today. So <laughs> and in the future, I'm sure. Um, so you have spent your would you say has it been most of your career here with extension in the in dealing with forestry? Um, I've spent I've been with extension I guess five little over five years now. Um, so not most of my career, but um, yeah, for about okay. the last five years. Okay. So so tell me um, in terms of you know where you've landed here with extension. Um, you're located in Southern Illinois, correct? Where at in Southern Illinois? So I'm at the uh, place called the Dixon Springs Ag Center, and so the Ag Center is a, a research and extension facility that's owned by the um, by the university, but it's in cooperation with the Shawnee National Forest. So we are um, right on the border of Kentucky. I, I I love the Shawnee down in Carbondale. Like we had a house that was maybe a mile from Shawnee, and there were some projects I didn't get done because I was. I was in the Shawnee National Forest and not at class, so yep. it's uh, actually a pretty neat place. There's Shawnee. I remember going to a place, uh, and this is not as far south as you are where Carbondale is, but uh, uh, Cedar Creek, and we would botanize for uh, orchids in the woods there. So uh, it was a really neat place to go look around for kind of rare plants. Oh, and, and Southern Illinois is uh, is an amazing place to botanize if you're interested in plants. Uh, we have, we kind of 
beautifully situated where we get a little bit from the Ozarks, a little bit from the coastal plain, and a little bit from the east kind of Appalachians. There's so many native species that, that just kind of sneak into uh, southern Illinois. So, Chris, why why did you decide to go into forestry? Was it was it always purposeful? Was it a happy accident? What was it something that you've always felt as a kid? You know, tell us a little bit about your career path, uh, kind of for listeners, maybe if they might be interested in something similar. Oh, sure, yeah, no problem. Actually, you know, I didn't intend to go into forestry at the start. Um, I was uh, even went to school. My undergraduate was in wildlife biology. I uh, started out as a hook and bullet kid, right? So I wanted to fish and hunt for a living kind of things. But uh, I remember when I was uh, pretty young, I think I was 12 or 13, I ended up talking to a a wildlife biologist and uh, just fell in love with the idea of biology, kind of learning about the natural world. And so from then on, I knew I wanted to go into something similar to that. Um, When I got into my undergraduate and into wildlife, I loved that, really had a lot of fun. But then I just fell in love with um, the botany classes, dendrology, and kind of just understanding vegetation and understanding how it grows, where it grows, where it's at, and um, just went from there. Ended up getting my uh, master's degree in forestry from Iowa State, uh, and then I got a first job with the University of Georgia Extension and then really realized I liked, uh, I liked talking, like presenting to people, helping people out, and it just became natural that uh, I would follow this career in Extension. Yeah, I'd say I, I've attended several of your presentations, and yeah, it, even if it's the same topic, I think I've seen you present, like we've, we kind of meet each other at uh, different conferences around the state, even if it's the same class, I'm always taking away something new from your presentation. So yeah, I can definitely see like how you just, you really fit this role, not only in your, your efforts of, of education, that, I mean, you're doing a fantastic job, but you also do research at Dixon Springs. Uh, I know when we visited there, you were very uh, generous, and you put us up there in the dorms um, and showed us around your research. I, I thought it was fascinating to see uh, your controlled burns in woodland. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of the different uh, kind of time intervals that you're burning, and um, you know what are you seeing right now? Oh, sure. Yeah, happy to. And I'll just say that I love the the combination that I'm allowed to have here with research and extension. And one of uh, kind of one of my real principles with extension, anytime I talk to people, I want it to be science based, you know, and really have that foundation of research. So I try to set up research projects, really the aim to kind of fill in that information that I need to help people. And um, down here, prescribed fire in forestry is a big thing. We have uh, a lot of people using that as a, as a restoration technique, a t- technique to increase the biodiversity or oak regeneration in their forest. So at the Ag Center, we did set up some plots. We have um, a couple different areas where we're looking at burning uh, and different combinations of burning and thinning. Uh, just to kind of see how they differ in the development of the understory uh, ecosystem here and the development of um, oak regeneration and just how that influences the the forest. So we've been doing that for, uh, well, since I got, so probably about five years we have those plots. And then there's some historic plots that go back about 20 years that have a history of fire. And again, we're just looking for those differences to try to tweak how best to use um, that as a management tool. Now, I know people might be hearing 
forest and fire used in the same sentence. Um, <laughs> this is, but but it, it, it and I was amazed at you know when you see it, you know an actual controlled burn in a woodland. This is not the raging forest fires that people might think about. It's it's fairly a, like a slow burn, a kind of a cool burn. Yeah, it's very underwhelming. Um, if you're if you're looking to be impressed and you go on a forest fire, you're going to be kind of bored. Um, most times the flame links are eight inches to eighteen inches. I mean, you just step over across the fire, kind of thing. I, I've been on on a quite a few different prairie burns, um, and those are pretty impressive. Those uh, can get those can move quick. Uh, they still don't burn as hot though as like a wildfire, but um, they're they're quick. They are tall. So if you want something impressive, folks, you know, you know, do a controlled burn with a professional who knows what they're doing <laughs> in a prairie. Don't just go out and light a grassland on fire. Yep. Thanks for that caveat there. Yeah. Although I'll say when I lived in Kansas um, in the Flint Hills region, people would literally just just light the ra- their range on fire and they'd go home and eat dinner. You know, and you would be driving down 70 and you just see this these kind of waves snaking along the hillsides of fire and in the darkness it was really i mean it was really cool to see you know but there's just not as much you know concern about that it's just more of a common thing over there yeah they're used to it right that, that yeah. gives me a little heartburn just even hearing that but you know. yeah <laughs> yeah it's like oh look there's the prairies on fire no one's around they're all gone they just lit it on fire and they went home so <laughs> So the other thing, though, you also not in addition to controlled burns in in, in the woodland areas, you also have been um, doing some research on different herbicide applications. Now, uh, th- is this predominantly to control invasive plant species? Um, for the most part, we have um, several plots and several several research projects looking at invasives, but we're also looking at. Um, using herbicides as a forest management technique to control even native species. So like getting maple out of an oak forest, some of that too. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, in, in our neck of the woods and in kind of West central Illinois, you do see some, some pretty large oak trees, hickory. Um, but, oh my goodness, the whole understory kind of mid story, it's all maples right now and it's choking everything out. Yeah, and that's not new, unique to your area by any means. I mean, we're seeing that across the whole, largely the whole eastern U.S., where um, you know oaks are are suffering right now a little bit, and they're just getting overtaken right now by maples and some other species that are a little more shade tolerant. So how how does that work? Okay, so there's this whole native plant native natives are great. Natives can do no harm. Why in maple tree? That's a native North American plant. Why? Why are we trying to control this? Oh, that's a good question. And and I'll start by saying I'm not a maple hater. You know, I think sometimes people assume that since I talk about killing maple so much that I've got something against them. There's nothing farther from the truth. It's just uh, our oak ecosystems here in the, the Midwest, especially, or even moving east, our systems that have developed over about the last 10 to 12,000 years, really in the presence of disturbance, so whether that is you know natural fires or um, anthropogenic fires with humans on the landscape for that that amount of time, our systems uh, and our native plants that moved in, our communities that developed, were developed in the presence of a pretty frequent natural disturbances, 
and um, really on the landscape about the last hundred years we've removed that natural disturbance and the species that did well that does well in that natural disturbance those communities that are built around a system that is kind of beat back a little bit and opened up um, on a fairly regular schedule are suffering a little bit from the species that can do better in those closed systems so like maples for example um, always a natural part of our ecosystem um, historically over the last like I said 10 12,000 years they've been um, they found their niche in these low wet areas north-facing slopes coves along stream sides areas that probably didn't naturally burn that well and, and maybe had a lot more um, humidity uh, soil moisture than the rest so the fires would go out um, in the absence of the last hundred years uh, largely the absence of fire on the landscape our forests have just been uh, allowed to regrow at their own pace um, that check and balance of those trees that, that would keep them you know in these more humid or more moist areas was removed and now they're, they're spreading out and they're taking advantage of their uh, their shade tolerance their ability to grow under underneath of other trees better than some of these other than oaks or these other species and they're, they're moving out on the landscape now at levels that are higher than they had been historically yeah i just remember seeing your research plots and and you describe kind of historically what a, the layout of the forest what an oak hickory forest was and there is a lot of space between the trees it's it's a far more open uh ecosystem you know that then than i I had in my mind that that I had experienced growing up as as a child in rural Illinois. Yeah, you know, it's a continuum too. So not every spot was wide open, but um, in the right habitats and, and a lot of our upland sites, absolutely these these trees were much more widely spaced. They often had a well developed understory full of um, you know herbaceous plants and grasses, and it's a, it's a far cry from a lot of the forest now, which seem like the deep dark forest right there's heavy shade and and not a lot growing in the understory uh except for some of these invasives yeah and we do have some questions about those today we're definitely going to be getting to that right. um i also want to uh check in so we one of our colleagues i think uh, andrew holsinger um mm -hmm. he I, I think this is right i think he came down this last uh was it late winter early spring because y'all are tapping maple trees is that correct? And you are kind of you're exploring kind of the other side of predict productivity uh, of forestry in terms of like a saleable product. You're talking maple syrup. So, yeah, maple syrup in southern Illinois. How's it going? Yeah, uh, Andrew did come down, and and it's a fun thing we're doing. And absolutely, you know, I just spent the last couple minutes talking about all how we're killing all these maples, but then I'm going to talk now about why we're keeping some of them. <laughs> Um, but no, so uh, maple syrup, you know, you think of that in Wisconsin or Vermont or Canada, but really kind of anywhere there's maples, uh, particularly sugar maples can grow, you have the potential to, to collect and produce maple syrup. And so that's what we're trying to do here. Um, we're trying to set up a program and a demonstration to show people at the southern end of sugar maples range that it's still a viable option for what we call a, a non-timber forest product, something else you can get out of your forest other than a timber harvesting. And we have, um, we have a small area. I think we only have about 100 taps right now, and we're slowly growing it. We started out with you know, hanging buckets on trees, um, and we've worked our way up every year. We add a few new features. 
um, including tube systems and collection systems and, and better boiling systems as well. And you can still do maple syrup with other maple species, right? You just need more of the sap to make it. Yes, you can. So um, any, you know, to, to sell maple syrup, to have it sold as maple syrup, it just really has to come from a tree in that Acer genus. So it could be, you know, red maples, silver maples, even box elder, you know, can collect. You can get maple syrup out of. We tend to prefer sugar maple here simply because um, it produces a little more uh, sap usually, and the sap is a little higher in sugar content, which really saves a lot of work on the back end as you convert it into um, syrup. And then they're a little more predictable in terms of um, they're not so reliant as much on exact weather conditions to produce as something like red maple is. I'm eyeing the silver maple in my side yard right now. It's like, hmm, that might make a, a couple drops of syrup for me after I get it all boiled down. There you go. One of the other things that you, you also mentioned before we started the show is uh, utilizing technology in uh, forestry management. And you were talking about drones. So what, what can a drone do to help out with forestry? Yeah, so we're looking at that a little bit. And I would say it's my colleague, uh, Kevin Rowling, who's really the, the lead on that. But we're looking at, you know, how can we utilize this technology to help us um, inventory forest, help us look for certain features. So we started out looking at uh, invasive species. So can you map something like bush honeysuckle, which if you know that as an invasive has a, what we call an extended leaf phenology where it stays green much longer than our native species. Can you kind of use that trait that it has against itself and, and fly over the canopy of trees and capture imagery that'll let you map some of those invasives that have phenology like that. And then we're, we're expanding a little bit now from that. Um, we're looking at, can you identify canopy damage from something like emerald ash borer or some other forest health issue? Uh, can you identify landscape features that may point you towards restoration? So uh, some of these historic uh, habitats and communities like hill prairies or, or glades or barrens that are closed in and may be hard to locate um, just in person, but from above you might be able to see some of those features, those topographic features or, or uh, conditions of the, the vegetation that'll point towards that may be a remnant community. That's very cool. So is it using something like imagery or are they mapping um, using stuff also like like LIDAR? The It's like that the, the lasers, I, I don't know what LIDAR stands for, but it sounds like <laughs> lasers, um, but they use it to help map topography and they with imagery. Um, we're mostly looking at straight imagery, and so in, instead of just flying a drone and taking pictures, we actually have a program that lets us, um, the, the drone will fly itself and basically fly a grid and collect a bunch of images and then stitch it together um, to create what we call geo-rectified imagery, which has you can put into a system and know exactly where each point is. Um, there has been some work, and I'm interested in combining LIDAR, which is, you know, for the topography and this imagery to see if we can enhance our, our, our success rate of identifying these things. Have you found anything pretty neat with uh, the drone imagery? Um, you know, we found a lot of bush honeysuckle, which is not that neat. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we've... <laughs> we've uh, most recently, we were, we were working with a PhD student that's looking at trying to find um, kind of clifftop habitat, habitat that 
right at the edge of these sandstone cliffs, specifically looking for certain endangered plant species. So it's zeroing in on just the right habitat to kind of narrow down where you need to search for these. Um, we're just starting that. We just collected the imagery, I think, last week on that. Um, but I think that's a pretty exciting um, avenue to go with this. Oh, wow. Yeah, and you definitely need uh, undergrads and grad students to help sort through all that imagery. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So one of the things, Chris, that I I recall when I was down in southern Illinois, and, and, and actually it's it's kind of been in the, the news recently with some of the new, uh, well, the new tick species that's been confirmed in Illinois. But I remember when you were showing us around, you know, we did have to stop to do tick checks every once in a while. So how's it looking down in Southern Illinois this year? Oh, it is uh, phenomenally bad as, as every year. (laughs) That's, that's kind of the secret of Southern Illinois. I I actually like the ticks because I think it keeps our population low. Some people (laughs) just can't handle them, but no, there's, there's a lot down here. And, um, it's you just have to learn to live with it, honestly. Yeah, no, and that that's definitely the truth. And it, there are ways to protect yourself, and I know that just kind of probably just becomes habit, you know, just what you do, what you got to do. Yeah, absolutely. You got to you know put on the right sprays or check your check yourself for ticks often, or just avoid going in certain areas. Yeah. Do you guys do any tick surveying or um, citizen science on that? Well, we're actually just starting that. Um, We've got a grant, and we're starting to look at that. But uh, the grant's been the project's been delayed a little bit um, through, you know, for coronavirus reasons. We haven't had a chance to get out there. But one of the the interesting uh, avenues of tick research that's happened over the last say ten years um, elsewhere has been this um, kind of looking at how ticks and invasive plants are related. And, and there's been some really interesting research where. Um, you know, like bush honeysuckle or Japanese barberry or some of these other, even oriental bittersweet, some of these pretty bad woody invasives seem to change the habitat such that it drastically increases ticks and then ups the opportunity to for people to contract tick-borne diseases. So we wanted to just build off of that down here. So we're looking at uh, not only, you know, human diseases, but actually cattle diseases as well, since we are a cattle research facility here too. And then looking at you know, what role do different kind of types of invasives, whether they're grass invasives, herbaceous, woody invasives, and do they behave similarly or differently uh, depending on the different tick species? And then eventually we want to build that into how well does management of your forest um, lead to kind of reduction in these risk of of tick-borne diseases for for humans and for cattle? Yeah, I always have found like studying the the tick life cycle it is interesting in, in the fact that if you get a small seed tick on you you're you can kind of rest easy even though it might be hundreds of them you know that you're you might be their first blood meal so you're you're pretty much safe for the most part in terms of transmittable diseases right but the other organisms out there that they feed on and, and move them around what you're saying is the new invasive species habitat that that's being that that's creating that is that that's conducive to tick development. It it is, and I think there's really two reasons why. Um, one, I think the, those heavy kind of densities that our invasive shrubs grow in, and usually they're a lot denser, thicker than even native shrubs grow. Um, it creates more humidity at the ground level, 
And so one of the major um, factors in, in tick survivorship is humidity. And, and if that the humidity drops, you get a lot of desiccation and a lot of tick mortality. Um, so anything that kind of keeps that humidity at a higher level than it otherwise would be just means more ticks are going to survive. And then, like you were saying, um, they, need a, they need their first blood meal or one of those blood meals they have to be from an infected host. And so anything that gets them in proximity to more infected host uh, just increases the number of ticks that that can be carriers of these diseases. And I think most of the infected host, you know, for Lyme or some of those diseases are small rodents or um, even birds, I think, can carry them. So anything that brings those in contact with, with ticks, um, that's not what you want. Yeah, and, and as I learned with um, Peggy Doty was on the podcast, it was two weeks ago, um, mm-hmm. she said rodents follow humans because they're well adapted to tolerating human activity. Um, so yeah, they're, they're in close proximity. The other thing Illinois has, you know, we, we tend to have a deer problem. So, you know, we have an overpopulation of deer. We have rodents that tend to congregate, you know, wherever we have human activity like agriculture. So yeah, that sounds like a perfect storm almost. Absolutely. Yeah. This show is, uh, in addition to, to learning about our, our guests, is also about answering questions that we get into our extension offices. And so, uh, Chris, today we have some questions that we, we've mined that have come in through uh, throughout the, the last uh, you know few months to last year regarding um, you know kind of either forestry, invasive species, native species it, within that realm. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind helping us out here and, and giving them a good answer. And um, this first one, it kind of goes in line with what we were just talking about, invasive plant species, uh, bush honeysuckle. And in this one specifically, they're in uh, McDonough County. And I actually I went out to visit this person. I did a site visit um, because they really were just, I mean, just totally overwhelmed. They, they purchased a woodland. It's completely full of bush honeysuckle and, and actually i mean by full i mean you can really barely walk into that woodland it's just oh, so wow. full so so what steps would you recommend that they take in order to get that under control oh boy that could be a whole podcast just on that one question you know that's definitely true <laughs> um so there's a couple ways and i guess i'll i'll, I'll hit it in a couple different directions and it kind of depends uh, on the exact situation. Um, to me, when I see a, a site that's overrun with bush honeysuckle, you know, I'll first ask the landowner, um, one, are there any, like, what are the reasons for their, their woodland? Why do they have their woodland? What do they want to do with their woodland? And kind of their approach of what they want to, uh, how they want to approach bush honeysuckle is going to depend a little bit on that. And what I mean there is if there's something that's significant, like a significant resource that they value, that they want to, they, they own that woods for, you know, it may be, um, you know, a neat natural area, a neat feature on the landscape or something like that, that's, um, that really is valuable to them. I would say start there. So that way you're, you're going to minimize kind of the impacts to the highest valuable spot on your land. And it may be, you know, timber value. I'm not sure. Um, and then, you know, focus on that. Save what you can first and then work out into less um, less valuable, less quality sites. That's one take. The other one would be um, 
kind of draw a, a line in the sand. You know, you would if bush honeysuckle's not everywhere, but if it's actively moving, kind of start at the edges where the, the, the hopefully the bushes are a little younger, maybe a little easier to control, and then kind of work your way inside and, and contain that infestation and slowly and work your way in. Um, the the bad thing about bush honeysuckle is that it's um, it's aggressive, it spreads fast, it moves through. The good thing about bush honeysuckle is we know how to kill it, and I think that's that's a bonus. We know what treatments work, we know what herbicides work, we know even how you can do that if you don't want herbicides, don't want to use herbicides. So if you're a landowner and you've only got a few acres, um, you can start working on it yourself. You know, pick out that direction whether you want to work outside in from a valuable area or inside out from the edges, and then um, you know. Cut the bush honeysuckle down close to the ground level. Paint the stump with something like uh, a glyphosate mixture uh, to keep it from sprouting back. And then just kind of slowly work your way through there. Um, if it's absolutely overrun where they can't even walk through it, there's a few techniques that are that are used that are kind of bigger or heavy equipment that you would want to hire somebody out for. And one of the ones that we're starting to use down here is a forestry mulcher. And so that's basically a skid steer, like a bobcat, you know, with a big rotating uh, thing on the front that grinds down woody plants. And so we, you can use that if you absolutely cannot even walk through the honeysuckle. Uh, you can use that to kind of mow it down, get it on the ground, just to give you access. And so you can come back in and, and spray sprouts or control it later. Um, that seems to work pretty well, you know, in those horrible stands where you can't even walk through. Um, the other um, the other technique and really only works if you've got a lot of acreage and there's been some research in Illinois and it's very promising and people are actually using um, aerial control for honeysuckle in these stands where they've got say 80 to 100 acres of solid honeysuckle or more they're finding that coming in in that fall period when the, the leaves are down in the oak trees and are natives but honeysuckle still green they can spray them at that point in time and get really good control on the honeysuckle for not that uh, much cost per acre and really not see a lot of impacts to our natives. And um, that's been successful in those places where somebody just doesn't even know where to start. They think they've completely lost their woods. It just gives them that start. It gives them a, a place to kind of do that first um, attack, if you will, to use war language on honeysuckle. I was thinking of your drones when you're talking about that. I was like, ooh, the future application for drone technology. <laughs> yeah, there we go. But it's tough, you know, and, and the big thing is persistence, right? I mean, you're never going to get rid of the honeysuckle in one year. Um, it's going to take multiple years. You're going to have to just slowly make – you try to make more progress than the honeysuckles make in each year. And then um, if your neighbors have it, it's going to come back on. So try to work with your neighbors and coordinate something. Um, but I guess – don't lose, uh, don't lose faith, right? Just keep at it. Yeah. Now, so glyphosate, there's no risk to glyphosate moving out of, um, moving in the soil. Is that correct? And damaging your desirable trees? Well, it's low risk, right? You can't say there's no risk for anything, but the reason we, we use glyphosate in those situations are that it tends to bind with organic matter pretty quick. And then for herbicides, it breaks down in the soil fairly quickly into, um, to more you know innocuous components and so we tend not to see 
um, non-target impacts, movement, you know, uh, in the soil or movement from tree, to, from tree to tree, you know, through root grafts or something like we do with other herbicides. Now, I do recall, and you helped me out with this before, it was a grove of hackberry that they had treated honeysuckle all around and they had used a product whose active ingredient was piclorum and it, it totally decimated their hackberries and so you, you had talked about piclorum and how you typically don't recommend using that in their in certain situations absolutely yeah. so c- certain herbicides like piclorum herbicides and there's a few others um, are ones that um, tend not to bind as well into the soil. So they tend to move in the soil a little bit more so than, than other herbicides, particularly if it's soil that's sandy or, um, you know, if it's following a rain or something like that. The other thing they can do is actually move through root grafts. So a lot of trees will actually graft their roots, sometimes even between tree species. And so you, you spray the stump of one tree species or, or one woody plant and it can may actually move through its root system through another root system that it's touching and then impact another tree and so things like picloram or a few of these other herbicides um, I tend to stay away from if I'm working in an area that has desirable woody vegetation I would reserve those for prairie work or, or pasture work or some area where you don't have desirable trees that you want to save. All right, our next question comes from Fulton County, uh, where there's a new landowner who wants to create a woodland habitat on their place. Um, What advice um, can you give them for that? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I love that kind of question because I love landowners wanting to improve their their land, wanting to create woodland habitat. Um, The answer's a little tricky, as most of these are, and I would say it depends, right? you know, you, the first step that you have in terms of creating woodland habitat is to, to get a sense of what you've got already. And so if this is a landowner that has a forest and then just wants to create um, better forest or kind of open it up into a woodland type, um, knowing what they have, knowing their soils, um, knowing what species grow well there, what species are already on the landscape, can kind of help them figure out what to do next, um, whether they need to thin some of those trees, whether they needed to plant something else. Um, so normally what we do for any landowner that's wanting to manage their forest or manage their woodlands, it would be recommending that they, they start with getting uh, what we call a forest stewardship plan. And so that's a plan that's written by a, a consultant forester um, in the state. And it, it does just what I mentioned. It does an inventory of what they have, it lays out steps to take to um, meet their objectives of the landowner, whether that's woodland habitat or, or timber or anything. Um, and then it kind of gives a schedule on how, how best to implement those, those practices they'll need to go. And really, that's, um, those management plans are a roadmap of how to, how to do what they want on their land, and they're super valuable. So that, to me, is kind of the best piece of advice is get an expert on your side, get your land looked at and kind of get that roadmap to help guide you. And this is going to be a, a multi-year process, right? Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. going to be an overnight type thing. No, and that's the thing with trees, right? I mean, uh, trees, uh, we get a little prairie envy. You plant a prairie, those things are going to be blooming in a few years, right? Uh, trees, you plant you plant trees on the ground, they won't mature sometimes for 40 years. So it is, it's an it's a exercise in patience when you're dealing with forest. So our next question comes from Schuyler County. 
In a prairie reconstruction, there are large patches of wild parsnip. What can they do to remove this without being burned by the plant? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I guess if it's all right, I'll start just describing what they mean by getting burned by the plant. And wild parsnip is one of these plants that has what we call phytophotodermatitis. Um, and that just simply means that its sap has properties in it that when it reacts to the UV um, light that you get uh, and exposed to UV light, it can actually create um, kind of chemical burns on your skin. Uh, it's, it's bigger rashes. I think of poison ivy only a lot worse. You'll get a lot of blisters on there. Um, it may even scar if it's that bad. So it's something that you definitely want to avoid getting mixed up with, with wild parsnip. Um, but the, the key there is getting the sap on your skin and then also in the presence of sunlight. So the main thing that you would do in that situation if you want to control wild parsnip, you know, really would be um, taking steps, taking steps to either not damage the plant uh, and to expose the, the, the sap or not getting, um, uh, not getting in the presence of sunlight. So definitely gloves, long sleeves, those kind of things are important. And I tend to recommend um, kind of a hands-off management so you're not pulling it, you're not weed, weed whipping it, you're not mowing it. Instead, I would you know, spray it with herbicide, um, let it die down and kind of dry down a little bit before you come in there and do something. Um, it is a, a biennial, so right, it takes two years to complete its life cycle. So you would, if you learn to identify it, you can hit it when it's um, that first year plant, so even before it starts um, producing those seeds. Um, have any of you ever been burned by wild parsnip? Fortunately, no. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's something to remember. If you want to, if you get it happen to you once, you want to avoid it at all cost. We had some some workers in the Knox. I think it was Knox County Highway Department that they were clearing out a ditch and they got some burns on them. And I think in response to that, they they asked me to come up and talk to their crews about um, how to identify them. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Know what you're cutting down so you don't spray that sap all over yourselves. But I think isn't it wasn't the big headline maker? It was up in northern Illinois. They someone weed eated a patch of was it uh, wild parsnip, and they they weren't wearing shirts, and they just the plant sap and parts sprayed all over them. And oh yeah, that was it's, a ER visit. Yep, yep. You see that every year. You know, in the summer, you'll see these uh, news items, and they always try to make them sensational, right? Mm -hmm. I've seen yeah. one that says, you know, my legs were on fire or something <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's fairly simple. If you don't damage the plant uh, and you don't uh, have exposed skin, you're going to be fairly safe. You know, the wild parsnip's one of those carrots, and that whole group of exotic carrots—they're just. Um, Bad, they can be bad news, right? I love carrots, though. But you know, you're right. I mean, um, the Queen Anne's lace, right? That that's in the carrot family. Mm -hmm. I like the flower, um, but it, it, it's a, a terrible weed. But there's other ones, right? That look yep. similar. Yeah, there's a few other kind of bad acting exotic carrots. Um, Poison hemlock, if you've seen that one. So that's another carrot that has claimed to fame, right? That was the one that uh, they used to um, put Socrates to death, I guess. Use the tinction of it. But it, it's one of the most poisonous plants we have in Illinois. Ingesting even a small amount of, of it, whether it's leaves or seeds or roots or anything, 
uh, can really kill you. I mean, literally kill you. So that one uh, grows on roadsides. You'll see it. It kind of looks like Queen Anne's lace, but it's got a whole bunch of flowers instead of just the one central flower, and it's you know eight, ten feet tall. Um, that's one that I'm really worried about just because I've seen it move all across the state lately. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, I'm definitely seeing it more and more. I, I actually, this is this made me laugh when it happened. The, someone did call, and you know we're talking about it, and he said, well. Imagine if this plant got in the hands of the wrong person, and then I'm like, "Well, <laughs> it, it has." Yep. <laughs> and I talked. We talked about uh, Socrates and everything. So he's like, "Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, this plant has a history." Um, but there is another one though that's on the radar of a lot of folks, and they're keeping their eye out for this carrot, a giant hogweed. Is this in Illinois? Um, it is actually in Illinois, but it's only in the northeastern. Um, Portion. I think it's in two or three counties up there and only four or five spots that are active right now. Um, giant hogweed is one of the strangest looking plants you'll ever see. You know, it can get up to 15 foot tall. It uh, is a carrot, so it's going to have that same flower like Queen Anne's lace, but its flower can be up to uh, the flower head, which is made up of a bunch of small flowers, can be up to two feet in diameter. So just wow. a big flower head. Um, the stems can be two inches in diameter, and they're purple and green splotched. The leaves are these really big leaves that are dissected and, and spiny almost. Um, really a, a wild-looking plant. But it, um, you know, it's very similar in terms of how it acts to wild parsnip in the sense that it has that same dermatitis issue. It can burn you. It can cause blindness if you get it in your eye. Um, amazingly, that plant was used as an ornamental. And why in the world would somebody would want a weird-looking plant like that that could oh. blind you and put it in your yard? But that's kind of how it got here. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's something out of Jurassic Park, really. It's yeah. Ooh. Oh yeah. But you know, if you see it, if you think you see it, definitely report it to Extension. Um, we get a lot of reports every year. It usually ends up being. Um, cow parsnip which is our native that looks like it or even elderberry or something mm-hmm. uh, i'm super happy to look at things and find out that it's not giant hogweed so i always tell people when in doubt let us know about it all right our next question this is um this comes out of adams county uh it's someone they're they're managing land and their goal is timber harvest and uh they actually had contacted the extension office looking for someone who could give them an appraisal. Uh, Chris, what what would we direct them towards for this? Okay, good question. I get that question a lot as well. And I'll start by saying I'm I'm happy they're looking at getting an appraisal. I think a lot of people harvest their timber just on a handshake with one person. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times their timber quality suffers and then the price they get suffers a bit. So um, getting an appraisal, getting a, a forester that knows what they're doing to come out and look at your land is the, is the best thing you can do to have them on your side. We actually, Extension Forestry actually maintains a directory of consultant foresters for Illinois. So these are folks that have um, the experience and then the education to allow them to be you know, consultant foresters. They have at minimum a two-year forestry degree. Most of them have a four-year forestry degree. And they do this for a living, you know, private consultants. And so on our Extension Forestry website, uh, right on the the home page there, there's a a link there to finding a consultant forester. And so you could get on there, find ones that operate in your area, 
contact them, get some references, and ask around and, and choose the best one that way. All right, next up we've got another question from McDonough County. Uh, so Woodland Restoration has lots of ash trees that are dying from emerald ash borer. Uh, should the manager do anything? Um, there are paths used by neighbors and friends through the woods, and they worry about fall, uh, trees falling over. Okay, great question. That's really relevant. Um, even though we've had you know emerald ash borer in the state now for um, since what 2006, I think, is when we first found it. It's just now getting to portions. These kind of outlying of Western Illinois and Southern Illinois, we're just starting to see kind of the the impacts from emerald ash borer. And um, kind of looking at this question, the first thing about should the manager do anything? Um, overall, even though there are treatments that you can use to um, to to save an ash tree to keep it from getting eaten by emerald ash borer. In a woodland setting where you've got a lot of ash trees, it's really not economically feasible to do that. I mean, you're going to look at um, these treatments last anywhere from one to th three years, and so you'd have to look at retreating these and the cost incurred. So, natural settings and ash forest, it's just um, it just doesn't make economic sense or sense to spend the money to control ash borer in that setting. So you kind of have to let it. Um, run its course, if you will, and you're going to let your ash trees die, which is, is uh, painful to say, but there's not much else you can do. Um, the, the second part of that question um, about paths used as neighbors and things, um, they're absolutely right for being worried about these trees falling over. And ash trees in general differ from some of our other hardwoods in that once they start dying, once um, those the canopies um, start dying, the limbs die of that tree, it really breaks down pretty quick and then starts becoming a risk. They will start um, falling over or losing large limbs fairly rapidly, often even before the tree is fully dead, so within a year or two. So um, having emerald ash borer in a site and having it next to um, or in areas that people use and utilize, whether that's trails or um, parking areas or picnic areas, um, is a serious risk, and those those trees are very prone for um, failures and 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 limb failures and just even falling over. So I would recommend that any area that is frequented by people, trails, paths, anything like that, you're gonna want to work on those ash trees. And if they start looking bad, they start dying, um, go ahead and drop those trees. Work your work the way at least a tree. Um, Kind of tree length, tree height length. So if the trees are there, 40, 50 height, 40 or 50 feet in height, you'd want to work back at least that far, or a little bit more from the edges of those trails, just to kind of get those trees that are dead and dying out of there, um, just for purely a, a health risk kind of thing. Outside of that, in other areas that aren't frequented by people, you can leave those trees. Um, they're going to be good habitat, right, for woodpeckers, for other um, decom decomposing insects that, that work on the wood or anything, um, it's okay to leave them in there. Um, if you have a lot of ash trees and they aren't dying yet, but they're just starting to get emerald ash borer, um, if you are doing a timber harvest, harvesting those ash, um, you can gain some value from them um, at that way instead of, um, instead of losing that value. So that's an option too. And then lastly, we have a question from Scott County. Our windbreak of white pine is dying. We'd like to start over and also encourage habitat. What are some plans recommended as a windbreak for central Illinois? Um, that's a good question. You know, we've, we're getting tons of questions about white pines um, having trouble in Illinois. And 
it's largely because you know white pine is more of a northern species it, it may have naturally come into the northern part of illinois but um, it doesn't do well um, in most of illinois usually it suffers from root problems just because we have a lot of heavy clays where it's planted and then you get some you know root rot or root dieback or there's some other issues that happen so we find that white pines will do well sometimes for 20 or 30 years and then um, they do start dying and so i typically recommend moving away from those as a as a species to recommend planting just because i've seen so many issues with it and if they're looking at encouraging habitat i would say look at uh, a mixed kind of windbreak so it's not just one species you could do some of our native trees depending on the soil type and where you're at um, that are kind of hardy and do well but then mix those in with some of our native shrubs and that'll give you that kind of wildlife habitat that they're asking for and we have a lot of um, nice native shrubs that provide really, really good habitat there's some viburnums out there some of our dogwoods elderberries nine barks there's a lot of things um, that you can mix into that windbreak to give it a lot of good diversity and I think to me, the biggest take home would be don't just plant one species. Look at planting multiple species that have different bloom times, different heights, kind of different food sources, maybe some fleshy seeded things um, like those berries with something like hazelnuts that will produce nuts that are better for later in the year. That's going to give you, um, one, give you kind of uh, resistance against any kind of disease outbreak since you have so many different species but also just really maximize the habitat of that, uh, the quality of that habitat for, for wildlife. That answer just kind of makes, I, we don't need it, but it makes me wish we, we had a need for a windbreak because I want to make something like that, as you describe. Well, you don't need wind to plant that. Go ahead and plant it on your land, right? Uh, I guess that's true. That's very true. Yep. Definitely. Well... Now I have my new hedge between my two neighbors planned out. Lots of perfect. Lots of viburnum. We're gonna do hazelnut. Oh my god, this is gonna be fun. So, well, Chris, that was a lot of great information. Um, please, you know, feel free if, if folks have have questions about forestry. You're more than welcome to contact your local extension office, or you can get in touch with with Chris. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And Chris, you have a new website that is that we kind of mentioned it a little bit there uh, when we we're talking about the, the appraisal. Uh, but uh, yeah, the new Extension Forestry web website's up. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're super excited about that. You know, we uh, we worked for a while to kind of get the information we wanted in there. Um, so you can find it at extension.illinois.edu/forestry, or just go to the main Extension page, and there'll be a link from there. But we have a lot of things on there, all of our publications, uh, links to our events, links to our YouTube videos from our webinars, um, resources like the Consulting Forester directory that I talked about. And so we try to keep it updated and we really try to have the information that people want you know, uh, about forestry and about managing their forest uh, in Illinois kind of readily available right there. So you saying that reminds me of a, a publication that you put out, was it a year or two ago, uh, about invasive species and recommended controls or management? Um, yeah. What's the title of that? I'm blanking so it, right now. So it was uh, Management of Invasive Plants and Pests of Illinois. So that was a booklet that we did in cooperation or in partnership with the Morton Arboretum. And so we put that together really because we wanted a, a, a good source that give us kind of really updated information about how best to manage these invasive plants 
And we added in um, seven or eight kind of the common forest pests that we're worried about, emerald ash borer, um, Asian longhorn beetle, some of these kind of big name ones. We added those in there as well. I mean, so it's a good resource. It's available um, right there on the homepage of our website. And actually, if you want, we have printed copies. So you could go to your, uh, any listener can go to their county extension office and ask about it. And if they don't already have copies, um, they can contact me and I'll get their office copies because we really want to get this information out there um, as much as possible because anytime anybody's doing invasive plant management, we want them to use the most effective, safest method possible. And that's kind of what that guide points them towards. You know, we we have we do like extension booths. You know, it feels like long time ago, but you know, we used to be <laughs> able to meet people in person. Um, but we would have you know, these publications that that you've created, the hard copies. There, we'd have a stack of them, and right next to it, we have a bowl of candy. And you know, extension, we're just trying to throw free stuff at people. <laughs> and this stack disappears faster than the candy does. I mean, this. I mean, people really want this information. It's a great tool. So. Um, I think I've ordered two or three cases from you already, Chris, and there might be more in the future. Well, that's great. That's what we want for sure. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for all of your knowledge and and information that you provided us. Oh, happy to do it, Chris and and Ken and Katie. I I really enjoyed this, and um, I'm glad you guys are doing these podcasts like this. Uh, It's a lot of fun to be involved. Oh, definitely. And, And Ken, Katie, of course, as always, thank you for being on the show we really appreciate your time as well. Yes, thank you. Both Chris's and Katie and Chris, I learned a lot. Good. Yeah. Now, I'll just say, you know, back when, you know, in, in, in the early eight, 80s, 70s, Chris was a really cool name. So that's why everybody <laughs> is named Chris. Yep. <laughs> so, all right. Well, folks, and if you're interested in checking out more of that information on uh, the Extension Forestry website, uh, Invasive Species Management, uh, even looking for uh, appraisal for your own uh, timber management stand. We will leave a link to that below in the show notes. And as always, listeners, thank you for doing the listening. Keep on growing.